So are you a person who takes risks? How many of you, if I were to offer skydiving later today, you're in? I mean, for real. I'm not just talking about you got to get on the plane, but like you don't get out of the plane, I push you. All right? All right. Um, how many of you, that sounds like the worst afternoon ever? All right. Okay. Um, how many of you, I, I know there are some of you who think about investing and, and you, you have some money. How many of you are in for like high risk, high return investments? Like you can make a lot of money, but you can also lose a lot of money. Are you that sort of person? Anyone? Some of you? <laughs> All right. God bless you, man, because that's not me. I'm like, I know, I only have so much, and I want to hang on to it, and if it's going to grow, I want to make sure I get the sure stuff, right? The sure growth. Um, when we think about risk, and when we think about it in terms of, of faith, the, this morning's message is, is uh, titled, Risky Faith. What does that mean to us? Does it, does it mean that you and I are called to be missionaries in China. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, that was the big one, right? If you were going to be a person of real faith, you were going to go be a missionary in China. Is, is that what we believe faith is? Do we believe that, you know, we talk about from, from Hebrews that faith is belief in something that you cannot see that you trust in God to guide and, and do amazing things. When we trust him, even though we're not sure, does it mean that we do those big things or is there something else that we can learn about faith? What's interesting this morning in our text from Mark chapter five is I think God has a lot to teach us about faith that is not just about these big things, these things that we would define as big that sometimes the definition of big faith is actually a lot different than what we think. It's something that's much maybe bigger, something that even is more tangible, vital, something that we can engage with a little bit more every day. I think that's what God has to teach us this morning. If we listen, let's dive in. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading at verse 21. And it says there in God's word, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded, earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now there's something right at the beginning of that section of text that should trigger something in those of you who were here last week. What does it say? What does this say that you should trigger something in you? Anyone? I did preach here last week. That's not a dream, right? That's not something that happened in my brain but didn't really happen. He crossed over. 
Remember, last week we talked about him crossing over, how that's important. Because him crossing over means that he is going to a different group of people. Remember, we defined Redlands as different than Loma Linda, as different than, than Rialto, as different than San Bernardino. All of those communities are different and, and represent some different things. That in the same way as that, difference is there. When Jesus crossovers in the, crosses over in the boat from one side of the lake to the other, that that represents him speaking to a different group of people. Last week, the group of people that he spoke to were the Greeks, those in the Decapolis. Remember? <clears throat> those people who live out rationality, that they are developing arts and philosophy and for them order and, and, and rationalism in their world is a value that they hold dear and thus the demon-possessed man put that at risk. And so that was where the issue was. This week, Jesus is crossing over from the Decapolis to somewhere else. Now, here's what we know, because at the beginning of chapter 6, it says, and then he walked back to his own people. We know he's not going back to Galilee. So he's not going back to the Capernaum and Nazareth and those places, because that's where he is from. Instead, he's going to one of two other places. The first place that he could go to is actually a region to the, it's on the northeast portion of the Sea of Galilee. If you don't know much about the Bible or biblical history, simply be patient with me for a couple minutes and we'll get to where you, you, you uh, I'll share with you the things you need to understand about this. But it, just to give you a little bit of a picture, the zealots live in the northeast portion of the Sea of Galilee. And the zealots are people who have a certain characteristic. Does anybody want to guess what that characteristic is from their name? They have zeal. And what do they have zeal for? What was that, Pete? Getting rid of Rome? Yes. They want to be God's people with their own country, with their own nation. And there's one thing that they know, they have zeal for another thing because they know if they don't have zeal for that thing, they put a nation at risk. What do they have zeal for? The law. They have zeal for the law. They're zealots because they're from the Ezra-Nehemiah strain. If you remember your Old Testament, Ezra-Nehemiah is when God's people come back from exile. In coming back from exile, they reread the book of the law. And in rereading the book of the law, they realize we messed it up. And we didn't keep the book of the law. And God did what? He put us in exile because we were not obedient to God's law. Therefore, since they weren't obedient to God's law and got punished for it, they're now zealous for the law so they don't get punished and they can not be exiled, but keep their own country, their own people, and they fight to have God's nation. Now, here's the thing. If they are zealous for the law, did Jesus go to them? That's a good question. I don't think he did. In fact, I'm positive he didn't. Why? Because later on in this text, we'll see in a moment, Jesus runs into somebody, literally, who is unclean, the woman who bleeds. 
And because she is unclean, would she be allowed among God's people if they're zealous for the law? No. They're kicking her out of the town. Because in the Old Testament, if you're unclean, you get put out of the city. You get put out of town. If you had an open sore, put out of town. If you had done something to make yourself unclean, put out of town. This woman, because she'd had this bleeding disease for years, would have been known as an unclean woman. She would have, they would have said, no way. Uh-uh. You're not allowed. Get out. But they don't. So thus, I believe she went, he went to a different spot. And that different spot is a group, it's an area called Tiberias. And there's a group of their people there called the Herodians. Again, just be patient. There's a reason for this. They're called the Herodians. Does anybody want to guess about who they are aligned with? Herod. First five letters. H-E-R-O-D. He is the king of Israel. And what is his ethnic background? He is from Edom, which means he's a Jew. He's a Jewish king. He's not the Greek Roman king. He's a Jewish king. So person who is Herodian is Jewish. Remember, we need to make some of these distinctions. Over here you got Greece. Over here you got Jews who are zealots. Over here you have Jews who are aligned with Herod. And the reason why that's important is that aligning yourself with Herod gives you something. It gives you political power and political authority. It gets you things like positions as a synagogue leader. If you are aligned with Herod, then you are putting your stake in your Jewishness not being a religious experience of let's make sure that I worship God fully in order to gain eternity and the glory of eternity. That's, that's not necessarily your motivation. Your motivation is instead, let me be Jewish because Jewish gets me something. Political power and religious Position, ruler of the synagogue. Jairus is a Herodian. He's somebody who puts his, stakes his claim on political position. But he has a problem. And the problem is, is that does political position help much when you got a daughter who's almost dead? It doesn't work. You can have as much political power and authority as you want. But she's still going to be almost dead. You need something else. You need to take a risk. You need to trust in something beyond what you've trusted in before. You realize that what is isn't enough. I need something more. And in Jairus going to Jesus... He's instead of saying, I'm going to stake my claim with Herod, now he's saying, I submit myself to the authority of this one, this Jesus. And the risk is that he could lose everything. All of a sudden, instead, he's not aligned with the camp of the Herodians, the one who gave him political authority and power. Now he's aligned with believing in Jesus. And we know that the Herodians... And the people who rule them religiously called the Pharisees 
don't much like it when Jesus' authority is accepted. Let's continue reading as we discover more about how God responds to faith. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, Jairus was risking his position to acknowledge the authority of Jesus. The woman has no position to risk. She's a woman. A woman in a patriarchal society. She was not allowed to own property. She was not allowed, in a sense, to even claim her identity as woman in a lot of different contexts. She was a set-aside person. And especially something like this, a bleeding disease. She was an unclean woman. It would mean that she was not just sent out of the city as women were once a month. She was sent out of the city all the time. She was rejected. She was forgotten about. She was certainly a person who experienced great isolation. So she didn't have to risk a position, but she could have risked, or she certainly was risking, rejection. Think about why. She's unclean. Jesus, who is an obedient Jew, is not unclean. And for her to come up to Jesus as an unclean woman and touch him would make him what? Unclean. So if Jesus, a, a rabbi, a good obedient Jew, wanted to turn to her and say, get away from me. You touching me makes me unclean. She was risking a depth of rejection. She was risking a depth of a, a wound to her heart. Even the teacher who loves others and changes lives rejects me because I am unclean. Her risk is also, her faith is also great in order to step into the presence of Jesus. Faith does that sometimes. It calls us into places where we can be rejected or we can fail. And that's why it's so hard. It's one of the reasons why the idea of even going to Mexico, for some of you, you're going to say, no way, uh -uh. Mexico is too scary. It's dangerous. There's, there's things about crossing the border that freak me out. I don't know Spanish. It's too much of a risk for some. It's, it's too much of a risk. I know for some, maybe God has called you or you felt that compulsion at times to speak to a fellow student or you've called to speak, been called to speak about faith to a, a person in your neighborhood or a person in your family. But you're fearful, right? Because what happens if they say, I want nothing to do with that? 
There's a, a fear that comes with being rejected in exercising faith. And that's what hinders us often from taking some of those steps because we, we don't want to imagine, we're scared to imagine what happens if we're rejected or if we fail. It's one of the things that I think stops a lot of us from growing, which is sad. Because I think, and I think this text teaches us that God always honors faith. God always honors it when you and I are willing to take a step forward believing that we're not sure about what's going to happen. We're not sure what's going to happen if we go to Mexico. We're not sure what's going to happen if we go to our neighbor's house and speak to them. We're not sure if we sign up for lunch next week. We're not sure if we talk to somebody here about the challenges we're going through, whether or not, whether or not things will be okay. We're not sure about doing this. Or we're not sure maybe even of accepting Jesus. What does that mean? But I think that no matter what it is that we're not sure about, if we're willing to say, but I'll do it anyway, because God calls me to, God always honors that. He always makes our world a little bit bigger. He always challenges us a little bit more to see things uh, quite a bit differently. And he does that in the life of the woman. Let's continue reading verse 30. It says there this. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciple answered. And yet you asked who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. That's where it comes from, that idea of rejection. And told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Look at what happens when this woman exhibits faith and how God answers it. Think about how much bigger her world is. We know how long has she been bleeding? 12 years. For 12 years, she has not been allowed to do this. She's not been allowed to get a hug. She's not been allowed to be a part of meals with others. She's ate her meals alone. She's, she, she, she's not been touched. That's why the power of Jesus' touch is so poignant here. That's why the power of just brushing up against him is so, so, so big because she not experienced that. And then all of a sudden she stands there and like, I'm healed. Jesus and his group go to Jairus' house. They walk away. Can you imagine what that woman felt? She had to just stand there and go, huh, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? The world is my oyster. Because I haven't been able to do anything with anybody for 12 years. I haven't been able to shake a hand. I haven't been able to give a hug. And here, in exercising faith, God made her world extraordinarily big. 
changed everything. Because now she was a part of something that she could have never been before. God does that. God does that when we're willing to believe that even though we're not sure, even though we aren't really convinced, even though the columns don't match up, even though the, the, the guarantee is not 100%, that, that we believe we will do it simply because God says, trust in me where I lead you go. What I call you to speak, you say. Where, where I go, you follow me. And when that happens, the world that we live in gets bigger than it was before. I'll give you an example. A couple months ago, uh, through a marriage conference that this church was a part of, Kristen and I got familiar with this couple from Denver. Some of you know this couple. Their names are Sean and Diane Sykema. This is a couple, he was the pastor, lead pastor of the largest church in the Christian Reformed Church. I think maybe three, three, 4,000 people were worshiping there on Sunday. A lot of responsibility. People were coming to him for wisdom and leadership and wanting to be a part of things. And very gifted man, gifted speaker, gifted leader. Just tremendous capacity um, to, to, to lead a church. And he was seeing the fruit of that in, in his leadership. But it wore on him, which it does sometimes. So much so that he and his wife, Diane, said, time out. We need to do something different. So they stepped away from the leadership of the church that they were part of. It's a suburban church, big suburban church. And they felt called to do something pretty significant. There's a a road in Denver called Colfax, Colfax is this major thoroughfare through Denver. In fact, it runs from one side of the city to the other. It's the old major highway that went through the city. Took you from east to west, west to east. That's how you got through Denver. But, of course, interstates come. And when interstates came, that road changed. But there were still all these things that were there to support people going on the highway. So you had lots and lots of little mom-and-pop hotels. Right? All these little hotels that would, like Route 66 type hotels that would host, have like 20, 30 rooms in them and people would stop along the way. Well, now all of a sudden people are not stopping. Those hotels are still there. The neighborhood around the hotels changes. And now instead of people driving through to go from California to New York or New York to California, you got people stopping by to get a hit, to make a deal to turn a trick. There was a whole lot of that sort of community going on there, of addiction, of drug use, of prostitution. There was a lot of people with mental illness. There's a lot of people with mental illness in those communities. There's a lot of people who are right on the edges of society, undocumented folks who have to pay cash for everything. They can pay cash at these hotels to get a room for a night or a week or a month for their families. So that's where they live. And they're just on the edge of poverty and just on the edge of being on the street. It'd be a difficult place, but the Sycamus felt called to that neighborhood. Now, I don't know about you, but if I felt called to that neighborhood, I'd probably go maybe and, and do a couple of hours of volunteering on Saturday morning and walk around and try to meet people. 
I might try to get some food together to give to those so that they would have more food or clothing pushes, especially in the fall before winter so people would have warm clothes. But Sean and Diane decided to do something pretty crazy. They got a room in one of the hotels and they lived there. Suburban folks, nice house in the suburbs, Colfax Avenue, one of the hotels. And they lived there full-time. They interact with people full-time. And Kristen and I, my wife and I, had an opportunity to have a conversation with Sean and Diane. One of the things that we understood really quickly, uh, this Sean is, he and, I, he and I are kindred spirits, lead pastors of Christian Reformed churches, people who God has called to do very much the same sort of thing. And he says, you know, Scott, I have thought about that work, being a lead pastor, all that stuff for, a dec- for decades. But I'd never thought about this. And now that I have to think about this, my understanding of who God is and God's love has just blown up. It's become much bigger, much greater, much wider. I don't understand it so much sometimes, but I see it in so many beautiful ways. And I'm not saying that that I don't experience so much of that here because I'm not called to that. I'm not called to move into Colfax, maybe at least not yet. But, but I can hear what he's saying. When we exercise faith and when we take a risk in what God has called us to do and go to those places where we're not sure, it's not guaranteed, it's not always solid, solid ground underneath our feet, that when we get there, our world is a lot bigger than it was before. We see more of Christ's love. We see more of his capacity to transform others and ourselves. That's what God can do when we are willing to take a step of risky faith. And as we continue, we see how that shows itself in Jairus' life. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And there is this phrase coming up that I want you to catch hold of and keep it in your brain. It's in verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Five words, six words if you include the contraction. Don't be afraid, just believe. Girl's dead. He says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. I I hear that that two, those six words, those five words, those those sentences that Jesus tells Jairus. And I wonder, I don't know about you, but I wonder something. Because he says, don't be afraid. Why would he say, don't be afraid? It makes sense, I guess. But I, I sit there and I say, why would he say that and not say something like, don't cry? Why would he say that and not... Don't worry. Why, why would he say that in, in, you know, Jairus, I got this. He says instead, don't be afraid. Jesus is confronted with death, and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, immediately I think, that is about as much about salvation at the threshold of death as anything I've ever heard. Don't be afraid of death. Just believe. 
don't be afraid of what death and its consequence bring to the ending of your life, but just believe, because I got you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to die. I mean, I, I do want to die. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? I do want to die in this. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with, with, in God's presence for all of eternity. I want to experience that. But if you said to me, Pastor Scott, on the way home, if you drive down Highland and when you get to Cajon, you will get T-boned and you will die on the way home, I'm going Redlands Boulevard. I'm just telling you. Because I don't want to die. I don't want to die today. I got uh, my wife, my kids, Cameron's coming home from Michigan today. I want to talk to her and find out about her visit there. I got stuff I'm looking forward to. I don't want to die. But the problem is, is we all have to face that, right? Some of us have had to face it a lot. There's been some funerals recently that people have gone through. Some funerals that were a long time ago are still very raw in our lives. And we need to be, we're confronted every day with the reality of death. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid if that's you. If you are 95 years old and you know, hey, I'm getting up there. It can happen soon. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Young people, you got... You got family and friends. You got people who go through this. I know there's been tragedies in in high schools and different places around the city at different times. Don't be afraid. Just believe. 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 Because Christ has you. He's got you every time. Friends, you're worried about what comes next, what what is what is behind the curtain, not just behind the curtain of death, but behind the curtain of the next day of tomorrow, of the concerns ahead, of the things you got on your list, don't be afraid. Just believe. And the passage concludes with these verses from 37 and onwards. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, that can be your wake-up call to your kids tomorrow, all right? Standing in their door and go, Talitha kum, especially you got girls. Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, there's a lot to say, and I, I, I could say it, about the incredibly miraculous thing that happened in her being resurrected from the dead. I mean, we see that, and it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, the woman who's, who's been bleed, <coughs> bleeding and healed, that's awesome, that's great. 12-year-old resurrected from the dead? I mean, oh, man, that's incredible. I I have a 12-year-old boy. And I can't imagine the pain of if my son were to die. I certainly also can't imagine then the joy of him being resurrected to life. What an amazing, amazing thing. And because Jairus exhibits faith. Now, I could talk about all that. But I don't want to. 
Because I think there's this little hidden phrase that speaks to us about a whole other component of phrase in this text. It's one of the weirdest phrases of scripture that I've ever read. It's right here. In the verses we just read. It's right at the end. I'm going to read it. Give strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And told them to give her something to eat. Does anyone else wonder about that phrase? Why in the world would that be there? Why would Jesus say, just resurrected from the dead, a 12-year-old girl, incredible thing, an amazing experience, exceptional We don't see many resurrections from the dead, even in scripture. And at the end of it, he says, and make sure you give her a sandwich. Now, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, training, and rebuking, or training in righteousness, right? I mean, that's true, isn't it? Why in the world would we have the, and give her something to eat in there? And some of you are going to say, this is minor, Pastor Scott. Don't concentrate on it. But it's not minor. Because it tells us something about faith that's pretty incredibly important. It tells us about the faith that Jesus calls us to live into. He calls us to seek the supernatural. He calls us to go into the places and in the spaces where God has to do something incredibly miraculous and powerful in order for something to happen. Something like a resurrection from the dead. Something like a healing from a 12-year-old bleeding disease. But he also says, within the midst of that, get something to eat. He says, live your life in faith. Do the things you always do in faith. Because I meet those two. Yes, I meet the bleeding. Yes, I meet the death. But I also meet you in the food you eat, in the sleep you take, in the jobs you do, in the regular, everyday stuff that you are a part of. Each of those things is an exhibiting of your faith in me. And I meet you there too. Trust me in those things because there's some of you who sit here and say, I haven't had a life of faith. Why? Because I never did going on to Colfax. I never went to China. I haven't been to Mexico. Pastor Scott, I must not be a good follower of Jesus because I don't have places in my life where I'm showing faith. And I want to say to some of those folks, yes, maybe God is calling you to something bigger. Maybe he's calling you to something greater. Or maybe he's calling you to care for your kids every day in a way that exhibits faith. Maybe he's calling you to go and do whatever it is that you do. Be a counselor. Be a fireman. Be a teacher. Be a stay-at-home parent. Be a retiree. I'm not even sure what that job is, but I hear it's a good one. In all those things that your day-to-day is getting something to eat in faith. I'm taking this step, Lord. I'm taking this movement, Lord. It is mundane. 
It's making sure that my kids are clothed and fed and healthy and have an opportunity to go to school and do the things that kids get to do. But I'm going to do that in my heart of hearts, believing you're going to meet me in the next thing that I do. God gave me a phrase a number of years ago. He gave it to me in the midst of some pretty big crisis. And it's a phrase that I have used over and over again in crisis. I've used it often at the very back door of this sanctuary, getting ready to escort a family in here for a funeral. Because the pain of doing that walk for some is a deep and horrible pain. And some of you have heard me utter this phrase to you in those moments. Some of you, some of you maybe have heard those phrases, that phrase in a hospital room, because I've spoken it there. It is simply this phrase. It's the phrase, one more step, one more breath. That you take that step of faith right back there to come down the aisle and bury a loved one with one more step, one more breath, because that's all you can do. That's faith. That's real. You, you can't know what happens next. You can't know 50 steps ahead. You can't know five steps ahead, but you know one step ahead. You know one breath ahead. I know this second I can live in faith. I know this moment I can trust in that which I cannot see and believe, God, I will trust in the work and the spirit and the power of Jesus Christ in my heart and my life to transform me if I will but believe. And I will believe. And in believing, one more step, one more breath, God meets us. Friends, you may not have the big story. You may not have the Colfax Avenue. You may not have the missionary in in China or the the trip to Mexico. You may not have that. And, And although some of you may be called to those things now or in the future, you need to be faithful to that. Go and do it. Some of you won't ever get called to that. But you will get called to one more step. And you will be called to one more breath. And in those moments, just as much as Jairus, Jairus going, come, see my daughter. Just as much as the woman reaching out to grab. That those moments of one more step, one more breath, are just as much about faith. If in our heart of hearts we're saying, I'm not sure, Lord, but I'll do it. I ain't, I ain't confident, but I'll go. Not sure what I'm doing, but I'll speak. When we're in those places, that's just as much about a risky faith as Colfax or Mexico ever will be. If God, if we allow God to use us that way. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for meeting us in the supernatural healing power that you showed to the woman. Thank you for meeting us in the supernatural resurrection power that you showed to Jairus, Jairus's daughter. And thanks for meeting us in the faith that often is exhibited by putting waffles in the toaster for our kids. That you meet us in the faith of saying, I'll get in my car today and go to work because God will use me there and I'll trust that. 
that you can meet us in the faith of coming to worship here this morning. Not even sure why we're here, not even sure what's going on, but Lord, we will come to this place and we will do it because you call us and we'll just trust that when we go where you call us, you'll meet us there. I pray for folks who are in all those different places, maybe radical steps of faith that change everything about their world. Maybe, Lord, instead it's radical steps of faith that will change their every moment. Meet us each in those places. Use our faith to give yourself glory so that the world can see this God who we can't maybe see is very real. His love and his grace change everything, and we will trust in his promises for us. Father, equip us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.